You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our Charity Champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. In this episode, our first winner of 2018, the Talitha Coom Institute. We just knew that we were burying more teenagers in South Waco than we were seeing graduate from high school. Executive Director Susan Cowley tells us how toxic stress at an early age can affect a child's brain. We also learn about how the nonprofit got started and how you can help them in their mission. And now, here's my talk with Susan Cowley. For those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? I am Susan Cowley. I am executive director of Talitha Coombe Institute. What is Talitha Coombe Institute? Talitha Coombe is a mental health therapeutic nursery, Randy, and it people say, why would an infant need mental health care? And that's our opening to explain how trauma-affected children have their brains rather much decimated before the age of three. And so kind of explain how that happens. Deep, deep poverty is rather a disease of itself, and it's particularly acute if you're fifth or sixth generation urban poverty. There is so much toxic stress way over the heads of these parents that they are delivering that stress to infants without knowing it. And in fact, when you are in your mother's womb, your heart rate attuned to her heart rate. It Mm. picked up the same rhythm. And so if she is highly stressed and her heart is thumpity, 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 most of the time, your heart rate is thumpity, thumpity, and you come out of the womb for a variety of reasons already with a hyper-reactive stress response system. Mm. And if there are big events in the household that are violent or very, very loud, the infant brain, neuroscience teaches us now, is the one most affected by that event. We always say, oh, well, the baby won't remember. Well, no, the baby won't remember cognitively, but the brain has already received a blow. And those blows keep coming because toxic stress delivers the fight or flight response. That comes with the most toxic thing almost in your body, which is a stress hormone called cortisol. Mm. It flushes out of your adrenal system into your brain, and it's supposed to put you in full motion or full shutdown. The truth is, for children in deep poverty, that flushes in their brain over and over and over to the extent that it breaks the synapses trying hard to form neural pathways to the brain. And this is neuroscience light because I'm delivering it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the simplest, though complicated, way to explain why the brains of children in deep poverty end up in public school getting very quickly on the school-to-prison pipeline. And so also in the homes of these children, are there situations like 
sometimes domestic abuse and things like that that's causing all this stress? Yes, and Randy, the hard thing to imagine is children who go to bed at night in one place and wake up in another and don't know where they will be and don't know who will be in bed with them. We have a lot of difficulty getting children to nap, but Mm. naps are very important for trauma-affected children because they are exhausted. So we insist on a nap and we help them go to sleep, but sleep is not a pleasant environment for them. They're rather afraid of it. And sometimes it's because there's no bed, they don't have a bedtime, mom is so stressed out and exhausted, it's whenever he falls down, wherever he falls down is where he sleeps. And so there's not a routine which goes to the chaos that affects their brain. I would also imagine that the kind of children you're helping are also going to have some behaviors that children who have a loving upbringing would not have. Is that also true? You know, this is, I'm so glad you said a loving upbringing. These children are deeply loved by their families, but their families are fifth generation urban poverty, and bonding and attachment is a difficulty. It's a problem. Mom may not have bonded or attached to her mom or her family. Toxic stress gets in the way of all that. And so they are loved, but they are not solidly parented Mm. as you might find in some homes. It's that poverty adds a way, way high layer of stress because you can find trauma-affected children in very wealthy households. There's a study called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which is worth looking up for anyone and fascinating. I have an ACE score. Everyone, not very few of us have a zero on our ACE score. ACEs, those adverse childhood experiences, there are about 10 or 12 of them that are named. I have one. My mother was clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. I did not know that until I was probably 16. And it was kind of a well-kept secret. And she soldiered on, and she was a fabulous parent. And so I have an ACE score but I was resiliently encapsulated so that it was not so much affecting me. However, if you have an A score of even two or three or four, it is a big issue with your health lifelong. And our children sometimes have experienced four to six ACEs out of 12 by the time they're four. That takes years, decades off your life according to the ACE study, which is now very well used by the CDC to help physicians, psychiatrists, doctors, everyone understand that adverse childhood experiences, and most of those before the age of five to eight, are extremely detrimental to our economy because it is ruining health. And what we know in neuroscience is it's tearing up the brain. We wouldn't have started Talitha Coom, honestly, if two things hadn't happened. God called us, and we didn't know what we were supposed to do, so we went down to local public school. We just knew that we were burying more teenagers in South Waco than we were seeing graduate from high school. And the year it ran three burials to one baccalaureate was kind of the end of the road. Mm -hmm. So we went to the local public school and we said, what is your number one problem with an entering kindergartner? 
And I really thought I knew what they'd say. We'd been in the South Waco neighborhood as Cross Ties Ecumenical Church for about 12 years. And we had a youth group, and they were from the neighborhood, and we realized we were starting very late to start at 13. And the local public school said their mental health is already shot, and they can't learn. And I had to sit down. I thought they would say they haven't been read to, they don't know their letters, their numbers, their colors. No, no, no. Very directly, their mental health is already shot and they can't learn. Randy, that was 18 years ago. Neuroscience couldn't show us why until maybe 12 years ago. Hmm. So we started a mental health therapeutic nursery because we went to Dr. Keith Warren and said, Keith, what in the world do we do with that information? Their mental health is shot before they're five, what's the hope in this? He said, the hope is you start at birth. Mm -hmm. So you start a mental health therapeutic nursery. Ah, Well, that just sounds wonderful. Keith, where can I visit one? And he said, you can't unless you get an airline ticket to the Northeast. He said, look them up online. Oh, Google was barely born. (laughs) Okay, look them up online. God called us to this and we said, then we'll do the very best for God's very least of these. And it's not even that the children are the least of these. It's the parents who've suffered their whole lives who are still suffering. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, you can't change the child unless you change the parent. You know, the truth is it's it's not fair to anyone in the first place. Uh, it takes lots and lots of time to change any of us who are adults. Second place, that baby's on the ground. What are Mm -hmm. we going to do now? Why do we continue in our culture to send children to public school only to land on the school-to-prison pipeline? We're the only country I know of in the world that has a documented, hyphenated school-to-prison pipeline, and that ought to send shivers down our spine to think that it begins at four when children are so out of control so violent caused by trauma not badness how do you call a four-year-old so bad Mm -hmm. that you cannot keep them in school they're so dangerous and and it's true they can be so we have started our new tech operation at la vega primary school They are all four- and five-year-olds, and UTAC stands for Neurologically Effective Ways for Trauma-Affected Children. They do not have to be suspended. We have to get beyond the thought that, oh, well, okay, we won't suspend them, but we will put them in ISS, and they will sit there, and we'll try and keep them very still when they are already in a full meltdown. It's not fair to the school to keep saying, oh, you can't suspend them well, then what am I going to do? I also can't do a safe hold. What am I supposed to do with this child who's bouncing off the wall? So we take them into our sensory motor lab provided by Rappaport Foundation, and our therapeutic interventionist takes those children uh, by appointment. We have 20, and those 20 are highly dysregulated, and they need sensory motor intervention. They don't need to be suspended. I can bring a child back from a full meltdown in 30 minutes to three hours. It's a big deal to move from your brainstem all the way back up into your prefrontal cortex, but that's where you process language and that's where you learn. If a child isn't there 
in their prefrontal cortex, if they're not both calm and alert, they are not learning. And we look at our problems in public schools and say, why are they failing? Why is the school not able to keep the star scores high? They have sometimes a predominance of trauma-affected children who are not receiving always the intervention that would be best for them. So you're kind of saying that the system is set up for children who have had that good foundational upbringing and is not designed for these kids who have lived in trauma their whole life. Right. It's not working, and the schools desperately want it to work. And it's not fair to blame them. It's not fair to blame the parents. It's not about blame. It's about what are we going to do now? Neuroscience has brought us so far in our understanding of the brain But schools of education and educators are trained to teach a child who is in their prefrontal cortex, who is processing language, who is able to learn. And I go back to the woman 18 years ago saying their mental health is already shot and they can't learn. And I think, well, that's the tragedy. And schools of education are not training teachers in mental health care. They do get courses in how to manage a classroom, but anyone would need that for 22 to 26 normal children with fine brain development. You would still need to know how to manage a class of 22 four-year-olds. I mean, Mm -hmm. who wouldn't? I can't manage five. And by the way, the executive director at Talitha Coom does not work with the children. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked a lot about the kind of children that you're helping and how you guys decided to start this facility. One thing that probably confuses some people is your name. Can you kind of explain how that works? You know, it's terrible. I forget to say to anyone. (laughs) I I do a whole tour and we talk for an hour and a half and they say, well, is Talitha Coom a woman? (laughs) And we do have people who call and say, is Ms. Coom there? (laughs) Um, And, you know, we have pastors who say, what uh, is that from? Um, The truth is most of us who read Christian scripture skip over Aramaic words. There are very few, very few, which is fascinating to me that these two words made it <laughs> into the, into scripture. <laughs> but in the book of Mark, chapter 5, Jesus is going his way, and Jairus runs up to him. He's a temple, synagogue kind of guy. Runs up and says, my child is dying, my daughter's dying, please come quick. And on his way, uh, he stops to heal someone else. And he gets there too late, and she's already dead, and all the people standing outside say, oh, too late, dead. And he said, well, I'm going to go in, and they laugh. And he says, just the parents. So he takes the parents, he goes in, he stands over this 12-year-old girl's bed where she lays, apparently, dead, and he says, Talitha Kume, my child, rise up. And she does, and she sits up, and then I absolutely love this. It's so practical. Jesus says, get her something to eat. (laughs) And I figure, if you've been dead a while, you need sugar. Basic needs. Yes, basic. You need sugar, and um, you need something. And so we focus at Talitha Kuma a lot, too, on nutrition, because, Randy, vegetables, fruits, things that are... We, we take for granted, but they're expensive. And I sometimes remind parents, you know, bananas at least are cheap. 
fairly mm. cheap because the produce aisle is not much frequented. It's so expensive. Kids want, want, want. So they come, sometimes don't even go down the produce aisle. And so kids grow up sometimes on fast food and little cheap meals and get to the point where their palate only likes chicken nuggets, cheese pizza, very, very, very limited. Well, that's my kids, too. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, Randy, you got to do better. I know, I'm, I'm you trying. You just got to do better. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I love the story because it's kind of showing that everyone thought it was too late for this yeah, child, right. but Jesus recognized that it wasn't. And yes. so that's kind of the same thing you're saying is that people might look at these kids from the outside and say their conditions and what they were born into is too much. They can't overcome this. Yes. And don't think they can if the parents don't change. Mm -hmm. And so we we had Dr. Rick Gaskell come from, he's a fellow of Child Trauma Academy. He came to visit us from Kansas and he stayed a couple of days, did some training, did observations. And he said, let me explain to you what you're doing. And I thought, well, this is great. He said, you're building a neural pathway, almost like it's in a silo in their brain. And that is a protected neural pathway that you're building birth to five that will work in school and later in the world. Once that's built and you secure it in a loving, strong relationship at Talitha Coom, it will be there for them. Someone has to build the path because it's not happening in the chaos at home. And so we have founded our entire work on believing in children, not in what the parents will change to become. We love our parents. They come every Tuesday night to parent meeting. We love and respect them. Sometimes astounded they're still standing. I have the greatest respect for how they are making a way in life with the belief that love and respect is the most powerful force in the universe. We have our parents in every Tuesday night, and they're not forced to come. They don't have to come. They come because we love and respect them, and we have a good program. We have dinner together. The children have child care with Baylor Urban Missions, folks on hand in our gym, and that's very important to us mm -hmm. because parents are important. We're never, never saying they're not vital. That child is bonded to those parents, we hope, in a way that says to the child, this is life itself. And we want parents to understand we know that. Mm -hmm. We know that. We're not replacing a parent. We can't replace a parent. But we can be a strong, stable, loving force where there is no toxic stress. So I had the great pleasure of coming and visiting your guys' facility last week, and I was kind of struck by, uh, it seemed like there was a lot of activities around, like, movement and figuring out stuff, not yes. a lot of, you know, there was no sitting in front of screens nope. at all. Nope. It kind of re reminded me of, like, a Montessori school or something like that, mm -hmm. and then also I was struck by, uh, there was a lot of playing with instruments, with, with the sound, and there was a lot of reading and things like that. Can you kind of talk about the kind of curriculum and the stuff that you're doing with these children? Yes. High Scope is a cognitive curriculum that has a 40-plus year longitudinal study. It's one of the highest evidence-based research projects in American history, and it was called the Perry Preschool Project. We looked at those outcomes, and they were for children who are, who are in deep poverty, and we thought, 
oh, this is fabulous, but we can do better. Oh, my, that was arrogant, but anyway, <laughs> we can do better. And how we do better is to add three and a half hours per day of sensory integration activities that modulate a child's stress response system so they learn what it feels like to be strongly regulated from within. People talk a lot about self-regulation. All of us wish we were self-regulated, but you know how it is, Randy. If you're in a car accident, <laughs> you're no longer self-regulated. Yeah. Or just driving, period. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> well, actually, there is that. A lot of people relate to road rage, mm-hmm. even minor road rage, where you feel it coming up, yep. here it comes, <laughs> and the cursing begins. But, um, you know, these kids don't have much time between something hits them and they've got a fist balled up and they've whacked somebody Mm -hmm. and they're as surprised as the person they whacked they didn't know it was coming it's a stress response system so what what happens is that when you build the base of the brain when you build from the bottom up and every brain does your brain randy built from the bottom to the top it's why you don't start teaching philosophy to infants Mm -hmm. you start with moving them around letting them move and then they crawl and crawling is something we sometimes have to regress a baby to do if they tripod and fall forward they don't get left right left right crawling goes to reading Hmm. not everybody knows that crawling goes to reading drumming left right left right goes to reading and so we do lots of neurosequential model of therapeutics which comes out of child trauma academy and it is an approach it's not a bunch of activities it's an approach to how we build the bottom of the brain Our occupational therapist, Carol Salveson, will say, if you could see inside the brain, it would be a little like seeing Swiss cheese holes Mm. at the bottom of the brain and in the limbic system rising up from the base of the brain. And we have to fill those Swiss cheese holes. So imagine, and you've seen this probably in your own education when you were a child, the little kid who fell out of his chair, hung his head almost to the ground, to the side of his, he just kept fall, you know, his, he'd just hang over to the side. And the teacher would say, sit up straight, Eddie. Eddie was in my third grade class. <laughs> my teacher, Mrs. Raymond, would say, sit up straight, Eddie, sit up straight. And poor Eddie didn't know why he was hanging out of the chair. If we see one of our children in public school at La Vega hanging out of their chair, what we see is a child who has a Swiss cheese hole and needs it filled up. And if you take him in the sensory motor lab and you hang him upside down, he's the happiest critter on earth. <laughs> and you could hang him there till he's blue and take him down and run a, a sensory motor circuit and hang him again. He has to fill up that Swiss cheese hole before he's able to sit up straight and stay there. It is a part of his brain that just did not develop you know when we see men pick up children hold them upside down by their ankles Mm -hmm. and we say oh daddy be careful be careful well the truth is it's all very important you need to hang upside down and you needed a sit and spin who knew sit and spin was so important children need to spin 
unless they don't. There are children who get very dysregulated when they spin. But if you see little girls acting like ballerinas and they go around the house and they spin, they twirl, they twirl round and round and round till they fall down. That is a part of filling the base of your brain where sensory motor wires all of your, uh, through the central cortex, it wires your muscles to your brain. It's also vestibular, which comes through your inner ear. It's about where am I in space? And so the, the other, the kid hanging out of his chair is also trying to figure out where am I in space? And, you know, there are people who walk up to you and they're nose-to-nose when they talk to you and you mm-hmm. take a step back and they come with you. There's something that happened for them that they don't quite know that they're that close to you. They're not socially inept. It is a, it's a function of how the brain wired up. They really don't know they're that close. So we can be compassionate towards those friends instead of thinking they're socially inept. Well, it's the same thing with trauma-affected children. We need to become trauma-informed so that we are trauma-sensitive, so that we can say, oh, goodness, that child needs so much care, so much love. And we do this too, we learn to go through even the grocery store and say to a mom who's just had it, you know, <laughs> she's about to lose it. You can see it coming. You know, the kids are running up and down the aisle, pulling things off. She's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> and it can be any kind of mother. And sometimes we just walk up and say, I see. Wow, what a day. What a day this has been. Do you want me to hold him for just a minute while you shop? And if you look normal, if you don't look deranged, <laughs> like you might make off to the car with this kid, they'll usually just look at you stunned that you're going to help them and they see it as love for them not condemnation of their behavior right what we're always careful of is to say i see boy today is stressful (laughs) can i help you is there anything i can do to help you for a minute and that says i'm being cared for i'm not being punished for being a bad mother so going back to the kind of neurological issues that kids are having now that you say that and how kids should be like spinning and being upside down, it makes me think that all playground equipment is actually mm. built with a ulterior motive to get the kid, you know, the kids to hang upside down on the monkey bars and to get on the yeah. merry-go-round and to swing on the swing. That's probably something very foundational for them beyond just getting out the energy. Oh, absolutely. And the problem is liability insurance <laughs> started making it very difficult for cities to have you don't see jungle gyms the way you did when i grew up mm-hmm. you don't see They're more safe these yes, days yes <laughs> yes much safer they think and uh but you miss something and not as much uh, fun no and so we you know we used to get on merry-go-rounds and almost hope we would fly off right <laughs> you know yeah. the flying off part is as important as the spinning because flying off says oh this is what it is to land on the earth and and not many of us died trying but um <laughs> liability started curbing what you could have on your playground and so there are lots of ways to do spinning that aren't on a merry-go-round and we encourage that with family sit and spin is not all that expensive you know Mm -hmm. it's a it's a plastic tub you can get at walmart and you spin it and they go around around they squeal and have a great time you do need to learn when to stop 
too much spinning. They yes. get up dysregulated, and I don't mean just falling down. It causes their stress response system to get out of tune, out of whack. And we encourage our mentors to have that kind of equipment at home for kids who come home with them. Our mentoring program, Randy, is uh, kindergarten to college. It's a little almost like having a foster child, but they don't live with you. Mm -hmm. They live at home. They sometimes spend the night with your family, but they live at home. We do have families who were considering being foster parents and decided they weren't quite ready for that, but they became a mentor to one of our children, and they say, wow, this is very close to fostering, and we love this. And it's not because they so much want the child to go home. It's a very different experience. Each of those is a calling. Mm -hmm. You don't foster children without a real calling. If you do, it might not succeed. Our mentors take children from generally kindergarten, and the person I mentor is now a senior in high school. We've been together since the first grade, her first grade, not mine. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) she's just blossoming into a beautiful young woman, uh, already has some scholarship offerings in track, and she'd rather play basketball. I mean, (laughs) each child has such a story, but we say, take them along for the ride of your life. Let them see what, what it is when you go to the store. What do you buy? How do you pick an orange? Take them to the bank. They don't have an ATM in their life. How mm-hmm. does that money get there? Why did it get there? And we start with you go to school, you get an education, you get a job, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Or take them to the dry cleaners. That's not something they experience. And when the clothes go flying around, be sure they're not exhausted by it. But, you know, <laughs> it's take them along for the ride in your life and listen so very carefully to their life because they'll give you the clues, but they're afraid no one will listen. So they may whisper, nearly whisper. I remember there was one time my mentee said, I think I might like basketball. (laughs) And it was the smallest voice. And she said it one time. And I said, really? Do you have a basketball? No. Do you go to games? No. I finally had to find the guys down the street who had a hoop over the street. And they were playing. And Mm -hmm. it didn't even have a net. But she thought it looked like great fun. Well, now she's leading point guard on her high school team. Wow. Those things can happen. But you have to listen so carefully. The parents are sometimes, there's several, many children they're listening to, and there's lots of times they're too stressed out to hear that little voice, or they think, well, I couldn't afford that, or I don't have time for that. What we do is we invite the parent into that scene. So we went to Upward Basketball, took mom to Lady Bears games. She had no idea that women were so (laughs) exciting and playing basketball. And she became her daughter's best cheerleader. Hmm. Always has been since we got her in the game, so to speak. So she began to take her to all these practices. Yes, I paid for Kim Mulkey Camp. We had her ninth summer this year. I paid for that, but mom took her to camp. Mom went with me to watch her play at camp. 
mom took her to all those AAU games, and now she has a job, and she pays her own way to AAU games in New Orleans and Houston and Dallas and far-flung places. The daughter does. So all those things are possible, but moms and dads who are very stressed out need help, need help listening, learning about the child, putting them in camps or whatever it is. And, and we don't say you need a bunch of money to do this. They need you mm-hmm. listening, just listening to their life and showing them how important their life is. I was going to ask you what happens to your kids once they leave your services there at Talitha Coon, but it sounds like you got them covered until they're an adult, which is really good. Do all the kids have mentors or is it kind of like when you can get them? When we can get them, it's a really vital need Mm -hmm. we have. And anytime I give a tour to a church group or a civic group or five people or two people, I say, if it's not you, you know someone who would be a magnificent mentor in this particular way. It's interesting. There are people who want the kind of mentorship where you go to a school and you read with a child one hour, once a week, and they'll do it for years. Camp Hope, all kinds of projects. It's fabulous. There are other people who want that deeper, longer reaching farther reaching relationship that goes towards getting them all the way into college Mm. and so we say kindergarten to college for a reason or career career's fine not everybody's supposed to go to college i don't think but many are supposed to go to college who don't have the thought they're first generation college students and they don't have that thought unless it's placed there in their mind and we keep saying you can go to college we had a mentee who is who was i think about eight years old her mentor was driving her past McLennan Community College and said, oh, look, there, you could go to college there someday. And she responded, they won't have a chair for me. They won't have a chair for me, Randy. This is a deep, deep psychological belief that I don't belong mm-hmm. in these places. They won't have a chair for me. She doesn't have a chair at home didn't have a bed of her own at home. Pretty much she's had hardship throughout her life, many adverse childhood experiences before the age of four, some serious deep ones, and since then. And they won't have a chair for me is as low as you can go on the hierarchy of need around college. They won't even have a chair for me. That's so sad. Well, we've been talking about the the mentorship program. Another thing that I thought was very interesting when I was visiting your facility was it's like every kid had their own personal narrator who was kind of walking around and telling them what they were doing, which I I was like, I've never heard this before. But then Nicole kind of explained it to me. Can you explain why you guys do that? Narrating a child's life is saying, I see you. I acknowledge you. We don't ever say, good job. Parents now say, you know, there was a time no one said good job when I was a little girl. They would look at what you'd done and they would comment. But good job has become, uh, people think that's loving. And it may be for some children. But when you say good job 
to one child and you don't say it to the one next to them, that child wonders, what was wrong with what I did or me? And so we never say good job. We say, I see you. They, they're doing process art. And we don't. We call it process art for a reason. The process is what's important, not the product. And so we say, oh, wow, I see you love purple. Look at all the purple swirls on this page. We don't say, I see a cow, because they probably didn't draw a cow. <laughs> they had no idea it was a cow, and they didn't want it to be a cow. So we never say that. We say, oh, I see. And so then as they're walking through, you are pushing a heavy load. Wow, heavy work. We love heavy work, don't we? Pushing a really heavy load. Look at you. And so they're saying, my goodness, what I'm doing must be very important. (laughs) And and wow, I'm seen. Mm -hmm. I'm seen. I'm known. I am important. And narrating their life is beginning to say to them, all of your actions are choices, and all your choices are important, and you made a choice here. Because at home, there's not money or time for choices. She's not going to see a little red dress by a little purple outfit by a little green outfit mom didn't have time to stand there and say much less put them out which one do you want to wear which do you like today honey <laughs> you know, there's no time for this yeah. find something to wear put it on clean or dirty we gotta go well and, that's my life too yeah. so <laughs> yeah right it could be anybody's life <laughs> who has to be somewhere on time so uh, there aren't really choices and there's not a choice of food there aren't good choices sometimes so we narrate what they're doing so that they see that choices are made choices are important choices have effect and consequence so our program high scope is a plan do review constructivist approach which helps children realize i can make a plan i'm going to do the plan then i'm going to review the plan so we have large group small group all these groups and they plan they go do and they come back and they review what they planned to do so Mm -hmm. oh how did you like the block area today you chose blocks well i didn't really like them i should have chosen something else and we said what would you like to choose tomorrow well i see we know new fireman outfit i want to play in the fireman outfit tomorrow oh you would choose the dress up area tomorrow oh good you make that choice tomorrow and okay mm, yeah i could have i can make that choice i can change my choices Mm -hmm. i would also think that if these kids have some developmental issues they may not have the words to describe what they're doing and this is helping kind of build their vocabulary yes absolutely and they as you've read many many people have read the studies that children who come from deeper poverty have much much smaller vocabularies so we don't just use low level words we use big words and yes narrating is a part of building a language bank so they can tell other people what they've done what they do uh, they can go home and tell mom this is what I did today and they often remember their teacher's words we have had parents come back and say "Uh, they know words I don't know and I would say what kind of word is that and they would say environment that's a big word for my little boy environment and she said I had to look it up to be sure I knew what that meant and I did I looked it up and 
but she said, it's so fascinating for my little boy to use such big words. And we said, well, they're able Mm -hmm. to understand and incorporate big words and we love big words so we're not just talking baby talk we mm-hmm. talk words we talk full sentences to infants they hear their teacher begin our problem solving techniques and our problem solving is wonderful it's six steps that comes out of high scope and when we have tours randy people come along with their phone grandparents parents all kinds taking pictures of the six steps because problem solving is about children problem solving themselves not you solving the problem for them and certainly not you saying well who had it first if you had it first give it back i mean that's the simple way and Mm -hmm. a lot of us did that because we thought it was fair fair doesn't teach anything mm-hmm. fair just and it doesn't acknowledge the feelings of both children right. they both have strong feelings so f- first we stop all harmful behavior we just stop it and we say oh i think i'll hold the cow and say it's you know a little three-inch cow i'll hold the cow and and you stop the harmful behavior but you go into i see how angry you are and they may be crying and say no i'm not i'm sad okay i see how very sad you are and you look to the other child to find out how they're feeling if you really acknowledge deeply how they're feeling they can begin to move up from their limbic system where all their feelings are churning. They can take a little step up towards their prefrontal cortex where they're going to process the language you're about to use. But if you don't acknowledge their feelings, they get stuck in the limbic, which is your midbrain. So we begin to move them up and we acknowledge all the feelings and they start breathing a little better they're calmer and then you say oh i see two friends who have a problem or two brothers if you're at home i Mm -hmm. see two brothers have a problem what is the problem and you don't tell what the problem is your name sure you know they start telling you the problem and almost always they're exactly on right on they'll tell you the truth they'll tell you the problem from their viewpoint he took it from me she blah And then you say, oh, two friends have a problem. I wonder how you could solve this problem. Not how I could. I wonder if you gave it back if he wouldn't feel better. No. (laughs) How could we solve this problem? And it moves them back to their prefrontal cortex where they're going to do problem solving. You can't do it down here when you're feeling so much. They get up in their higher brain. Oh, I wonder how I could solve the problem. And they generally will come up with a solution if they're old enough. Hmm. If they're not old enough, really, we do all the steps, but the teacher suggests something. I wonder if you held it for five minutes and played, and then we shared it with our friend for five minutes. You would have it all to yourself for five minutes. What do you think? Well, they don't even know what five minutes is but if she (laughs) sets it on her watch or her timer her iphone and says in five minutes this little bell is going to go off and then we're going to share it with our other friend sometimes they'll just nod really big eyes okay and they'll go do that and you say oh you solved the problem you solve the problem and i'll give you support i'll Mm -hmm. hang around to see how it goes for my daughter growing up, time was measured in Dora the Explorers. <laughs> like, it'll be two Dora the Explorers before we're at Grandma's house. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm afraid that is true. 
<laughs> well, it's a good way to solve problems. So we talked about the the mentor program, and you guys are probably always looking for those, correct? Oh, always looking for those. What are some other needs that you guys have right now? We desperately right now, and we've never been quite as desperate as today, need teachers. And they're therapeutic teachers. They come from all walks of life. They are generally not education-related teachers who have worked in public schools unless they've done early childhood education. Schools of education, as I mentioned, are teaching teachers to teach to the prefrontal cortex. Our students are not calm and alert. We're building in that resilience through the structured approach. It's not as important to us what they learn before they're five. It's important to us that they can learn by the time they're five. And all of that comes through the sensory motor program, the high scope cognitive curriculum, all of those things you don't learn at Baylor or MCC or TSTC. You don't learn them in school. We teach you those things even if you have a master's degree. We have folks who come and work with us two years and say, well, I got my master's degree, all right. I know stuff, but now I need to go get that sheet of paper. And so they go get the sheepskin and some come back to us after that. And some move on and do what we do other places and try to help other systems with trauma-affected children. So we'll take anyone. We love child and family studies. We love psychology. We love people in social work, people in psychology, neuroscience, uh, pre-PT, pre-OT. All of those things go to what we do. But we've had Fabulous teachers who had history degrees, English lit degrees, came out of international studies, all kinds of walks of life. It's that they have the patience of Job, and <laughs> they are calm and alert themselves. They, they tend, it's not that they don't have great energy. You watch Nicole, great energy. She's a fabulous teacher, but she's now our assistant director. But great energy while having calmness, patience, and willing to learn our methods. Our mm -hmm. methods, you just don't learn watching videos, studying a book. You've got to come in, get in the deep end, throw yourself in, and keep treading water for a while. It's a little scary in the beginning. <laughs> but if they love children and love children out of poverty who are very different, then this is all doable. We were talking before we started about one of your teachers, Bruce. Can you talk about him briefly? Oh, yes. Bruce Cabot, who many of you out there know, was uh, one of the editors at Tribune Herald and was there many, many years, fine journalist, just a creative guy. And towards the end of his career, he retired early. And he said, my calling now is young children who need me and he's a child whisperer uh, children always his whole life have really flocked to him and I think it's because he is so steady he's so calm he's very welcoming and children call him boo because they can't say Bruce boo boo but <laughs> they love boo he has just finished a full three-year rotation with a group of children who he reared from birth through three, and then that's called looping, and the teacher loops with the child because they're bonded and attached securely to him. Now he's back in the infant room beginning a new loop with uh, some infants, and I'll tell you, our, fi our kids need men. 
We have two male teachers now. We used to have five. Hmm. We want men, men who are safe. Well, well, women too. Right now, we need teachers. But mm-hmm. men who are safe are a, a kind of a fascinating commodity for children out of deep poverty. We have many dads who uh, are in prison or in jail or they're in and out, moms too sometimes. And it's harrowing for a child to lose a parent. They might, they might have been dead, and it wouldn't have been any worse. There, there's abandonment issues. There are all the things that any child would experience when a parent disappears. So men uh, who are safe and secure and never hit you and you never would harm anyone, that's a rare commodity. So we invite men to consider this way of life. We have two who've been there five years almost. One is getting his master's now in infant mental health. And this is neuroscience. This is not, we say to people, be our ambassador. If someone says to you, oh, Talitha Coombe, they do child care for kids in poverty, and you say, no, no, it would never be enough. They are backed by neuroscience, and they do therapeutic work for trauma-affected children who need brain development. Now, it only took me two years to get that mouthful right, so I don't expect anybody (laughs) to do that. Please just say no. It's way more than child care. That'd be enough. Way more. Go and see. Take Mm -hmm. a tour. It was very good. Also, Nicole mentioned that we were touring, and she said, yeah, this side of the building just recently got air conditioning. I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't even believe that. So your building needs some love as well. So what are some needs you have there? Good question. Randy, it had air conditioning. It was cobbled together so poorly that the teachers in the classrooms were sweating all summer and chilly all winter because there wasn't money for the the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Along comes a new facilities partner, Lockridge Pre who are loving and giving and they were doing this work even while that the tragedy happened that took some of their subs with it there's the explosion they had their own employees involved and even then they kept coming working with our air conditioning adding to it fixing it and they've been so amazing and so well equipped to do this work and loving about it sincerely loving the president has come by himself i mean it's a huge company he comes by just to check our little air conditioning system to see if we're okay (laughs) if it's all working well skip birch we had a wonderful experience getting real air and it's such a relief for teachers who are trying so hard to keep all their patients together but you're sweating you're sweating while you're doing it so yes it's an older building it was the gonzalez boys and girls club and we had have a World War II airline hangar, which is our gem that you saw. We picture planes in it. It's a fabulous structure, but it's from the 40s, moved from Connolly Air Force Base to its location at 1311 Clay Avenue in the heart of town, and it needs love. We do have now 130 KOTs who come this year about 15 Saturdays to give it some love and some cleaning. It's a big building to clean Mm -hmm. and to sterilize all the toys, all the doorknobs, to keep us all safe and sound. And so, yes, it needs love. And we also have Belfort Property Restoration who come and help us. Nimmer Electric is one of our fabulous facilities partners. We do have partner groups of people in the community who come to help. We have funding partners who put on events and help us with those, facilities partners. 
admin partners uh, who are sometimes accountants and bankers and lawyers. The community has really supported this. We started with four women who didn't have a dime. Mm. All we had was God's call, which is huge, <laughs> which is everything. Yes. Um, but that's all we had. We didn't have a dime. So when people come and say, oh, this would be too hard. This, is, this would be too much. I say, we were four women, mm-hmm. but we had a call. And we knew we had to follow that call. And we knew there would be the gifts and the graces would come. And our community has responded in magnificent ways once they figured out what we were, mm-hmm. what we were doing. We give tours. We really want to set set those up now monthly on our calendar online so that people know, oh, they're giving a tour today. I don't have to say, well, I just show up. Mm-hmm. Well, we do ask for reservations, so we know if anybody's coming. We've given tours to as many as 40 at a time, as few as one at a time, because my goal is to help Waco become trauma-informed which causes you to be trauma sensitive. And we have a community that's maybe fourth or fifth in Texas for its poverty rate. That is high in Mm -hmm. a state as big as ours. This is high. And we need to become informed about what is changing the brain structure of people in deep poverty because we're also trying to employ them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what you're looking at when you're trying to employ people out of poverty into wage earners, what am I looking at? They're staring down at the table all the time or they look at me like they'd like to kill me. Do I hire them? What's happening in their brain? Are they in there for sure? You know, all the things people wonder because the behavior looks odd. Mm -hmm. If you want a job, why are you not giving me eye contact? Gosh, Randy, if you've been shut down pretty much in your lower brain a lot of the time trying to just make it, eye contact is the last thing you want. It looks scary. You don't think you'll look good when you look somebody in the eye, so you don't give them that. It's Mm -hmm. not that you couldn't be a great employee and very steady at the job. Or you look at someone as though you'd like to kill them because you want to say, don't treat me badly. It's really a kind of a child response. Don't treat me badly. Mm-hmm. Please don't disrespect me. Right. But it looks doesn't look good. But we try and help people see what does it mean? Can you look beyond that? Can you really, really see this person as a potential employee? Because we need them mm-hmm. in the workforce. We want them in the workforce. Prosper Waco's doing everything they can to get people in the workforce. And uh, we need to be able to be informed enough to look beyond that initial behavior. So if you want to mentor, if you want to teach, if you want to help with facilities, if you even want to give these people jobs and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Go to our website. Just go to the contact page. We actually put our own email addresses out there. So you'll see who the assistant director is, who the director is, who the nurture center director is. We have parents around town who have their own children with difficulties who are not in poverty. Perhaps they've adopted their father to adopt parents. They're worried, they're concerned, they can't help the child regulate at home. We get those calls as well. We're willing to help our community. And you said the address once, but can you say it again for people? 1311 Clay Avenue. And if you put it in your GPS, don't say street. 
Clay Street exists. It's somewhere else. Okay. In, in Waco, it exists. <laughs> People end up in East Waco and say, where am I? 1311 Clay Avenue across the street from Cotton Palace Park. Do you guys have any big fundraisers coming up or anything that helps you get funding throughout the year? Yes. Rise Up Waco is coming April the 16th on a Tuesday. That's our annual. We bring in a speaker. We have a great dinner. We have a live auction. We have raffle. Uh, the speaker this year is Bob Goff, who wrote the book Love Does. And he also wrote his newest book is Everybody Always, which I hear is even more magnificent. And every time I say, Bob Goff is coming, somebody I don't know will turn around and say, Bob Goff, how did you get Bob Goff? And I think, <laughs> oh, well, it's who you know who knows who you know. <laughs> yeah. But he's coming, and we're excited. That will bring probably about 400 people to us, and we help them learn when they're there, learn a little about us, and have a great meal and fun. Um, we are also developing a Kids for Kids bike-a-thon. And the Kids for Kids bike-a-thon uh, will be Bridges to Baylor, and we hope to have a great party at the end, and that will be next spring as well. Sounds great. Okay. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming in, and thank, thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing with our kids here in Waco. Thank you, Randy. It's great to be a charity champion. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampions.org nominate. You can also find more information on this podcast and all Charity Champions at charitychampions.org. And of course, tell all your friends. We'll see you next time.